all of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, everybody, welcome to the Rethinking Faith podcast, and Happy New Year. It is now 2023. We did it. We made it. Here we are. But before we hop into today's episode, which I am very excited about, I have a few announcements to make. First off, you will notice that over the next three months, so January through March, Uh, My co-host Greg Ferrand will not be appearing in any of the interviews with me. Did I get angry at Greg and kick him off the podcast? The answer that I I have to say is no. Um, He made me sign an NDA. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Um, No, Greg is currently doing some traveling and also some writing. And for that reason, he is taking a short break off the podcast. And so, Greg, wishing you all the best, uh, my friend, and, you know, we'll still text and talk on the phone all the time, like we do. And, uh, yeah, just the listeners won't uh, be savvy to those conversations. So, listeners, sorry, you're stuck with me. But, some good news (laughs) is that today's episode is super cool. Uh, Maybe you remember a while back in October... Um, we participated in the homebrewed Christianity event called Theology Beer Camp. It was a fantastic event, and I know there were many of you who were disappointed that you were not able to attend, whether it was cost or like just the travel was too much or you were busy, whatever it might have been. I know there was a bunch of you that were super disappointed. And so uh, today I thought maybe, hey, it'd be fun if I shared the interview I did at Theology Beer Camp as a part of one of the uh, breakout sessions on post-penal substitutionary atonement with three amazing scholars, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, Adam Clark, and Grace Jisun Kim. That's right. All three of them in one conversation all around the idea of atonement. And guys, this one was a lot of fun. So 
excited to share that with you. But also, I'm excited to share that if you are still super bummed, you're like, oh, cool, Josh, well, that's nice. We get one episode. Well, guess what? That's not entirely true because Trip Fuller is hosting an Experiencing God class. Experiencing God was the name of or was the theme, rather, of uh, Theology Beer Camp this year. And so what Tripp did in Tripp's Infinite Wisdom was had all of the keynote speakers uh, videotaped while giving their uh, lectures at Beer Camp. And so if you go over to experiencinggod.net, you can sign up for this online learning cohort where you'll get to interact uh, with other people and also Get to hear all the keynotes speaking, and this class um, is donation based. So if you want to give Trip a million dollars, go for it. Uh, but zero is also included. We don't want money to be an issue. But I think you should totally go over to experiencinggod.net, join this online community. It's going to be a blast. Uh, I personally am signing up, even though I've already seen all the keynotes live. <laughs> but uh, I loved Beer Camp so much that I want to revisit, and also I want to be able to talk and interact with you guys in the Facebook group and all that kind of stuff that comes with the class. So, again, that's experiencinggod.net. All right, guys. Well, that's enough jabbering from me. Please enjoy this conversation I had again at Theology Beer Camp on post-penal substitutionary atonement with Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, Adam Clark, and Grace G. Soon Kim. Peace and love. All right, we are going to get ready and get started here. Cool, all right, so I'll quickly introduce myself uh, just for those of you who have no idea who the hell I am. <laughs> My name is Josh Patterson. I host the Rethinking Faith podcast. And you have decided to come and hang out on a conversation surrounding atonement, uh, specifically post-penal atonement. Tripp was really emphasizing that word penal. Uh, asked me to emphasize it. Don't know why. You guys can make your own uh, decisions on that. But <laughs> so we are going to do a conversation about rethinking atonement and specifically, like I mentioned, um, a post-penal substitutionary atonement bit. But just for maybe friends in the room or so we're all on the same page, I wanted to pick on Jennifer because she's a Baptist and uh, <laughs> thought maybe she, she could give the nicest version of what penal substitutionary atonement is. So we're not attacking a, you know, a straw man or anything like that. So I'm going to pick on you, Jennifer, if you would maybe, uh, if we don't know, what is penal substitutionary atonement? Um, okay, so penal does not have to do with penis. What? <laughs> There's no... All right. Got it. <laughs> Write that down. No. got to say that first of all. Um, so penal substitutionary atonement, also known as PSA, um, basically says, and there are various versions of this, so I'm going to do more of a broad thinking one, is that Jesus on the cross paid a penalty that we had accrued, that human beings in their sin had accrued against God. And so the penalty in various forms has to do with us either incurring God's wrath, that's kind of the old version of it, or we have offended his honor, that's a other old version of it, um, or that we've transgressed the law of God. Uh, and so we as sinners cannot pay that price or penalty. Um, and so Jesus pays that penalty um, as an innocent um, person dying on the cross. Um, and so his death 
or blood, if you want to call it, <laughs> pays the price for our sins to God so that we can be in right relationship with God. Was that a neutral way to say things, you think? Yeah, I think Jennifer did a nice job, yes? Yeah, all right. I would have just said Jesus died for you. There you go, all right. <laughs> That's another good one, yeah. Sweet, all right, so how many people in the room grew up with uh, PSA being the primary atonement theory they were taught? Maybe even PSA was conflated with the gospel. Do we have anybody like that? That was my experience. Uh-oh, now we're, all right, so now we're all going to hell, which sucks, but the, <laughs> so I wanna start with a really hard question for the panel, so forgive me, and then we'll get a little bit more uh, pragmatic, but whenever I talk about atonement, I get accused by some of my more conservative friends of being a silly liberal who isn't actually saying anything when I talk about the atonement. They want an ontological, they're asking me, Josh, okay, ontologically, did something happen on the cross where the cosmos is now a different place because of this event? I tend to fall into like a more phenomenological understanding and don't often have a good way of answering this question. So I'm asking you guys to please help me. I'm being selfish, and that's what they get for giving me a microphone. So anybody, if you would like to respond, do you think that anything ontologically shifted on the cross in such that the cosmos is now a different place? A way to get to the heart of the matter. You should go, though. No, I want you to no, go first. because I, I'm only talking because I didn't get to talk. You said something, and then you said one word. But anyway... Um, I think this is too heavy of a topic after lunch. <laughs> so, and then I also wanna like apologize to so many people here because I think people are gonna think I'm like a nutcase. I'm usually not, but the last few days I have been like one example and I feel really bad because I don't know who he is anymore. But we were having cake in the back and talked on and on about you know, Canada, because he's from Canada. You may be here, I don't know. About 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes we talked. And then I said, <laughs> I said, it was so great to be with you on the panel. And he said, what panel? He said, what panel? And I thought he was the man that I was on the panel with on Friday. But anyway, he wasn't, so, and then he said, all of us, all white men look alike, which made me happy because everyone thinks all Asians look alike. So I was very happy about that, but I felt bad because I've done it to so many people. Someone did a selfie this morning, and I said to, was it you? But I said to someone else, I said, can you please give me the picture? And he said, what picture? But anyway, I just stumbled and stumbled and stumbled. But anyway, the question was about... What happened, what happened on the cross? Ontologically. Ontologically. It's too heavy of a topic. So let me just share you one thing. My father, I grew up very conservative, evangelical, kind of fundamental, all those words now. And my father is still like that. So he often calls and says, where are you? Because I'm, I'm usually just traveling and I may say some city or some country, and he always says, people spend so much money flying around the world 
and you convert no one. <laughs> so, you know, I think the whole with the atonement, because you are being saved, he associates that with bringing people to Christ, and I don't do that. He says, you waste all this time, you waste everybody's time and money, and you do nobody, you bring nobody to Christ. So I think that heavy question is somehow tied in with bringing people to Christ because you will be saved. But anyway, I'm going to let, let the two smart ones here on the panel to talk, and then I will continue the conversation. Well, from, from my perspective, I don't even think that's the right question. I think a better or more effective question would be to, does that narrative have efficacy in communities of faith? Nice. Right? Instead of like asking a metaphysical question, it's like, how efficacious or how effective is that story, is that narrative in faith communities? And you can kind of tell by the impact, right? Because that, that's what we're really asking about, you know? I think the cosmological question is, is so highly speculative, especially when the world is falling apart, right? That it's almost nonsensical. But I think a more pragmatic question is to ask, does this narrative of, of the passion narrative, the death and resurrection narratives, how efficacious has it had in Christian communities of faith, right? And I think there's a, you know, um, plurality of answers that we can have. Some do do liberative work through that. You have Latin American-based communities, right? You have black church communities, but you also have a Constantinian imperial Christianity community that uses that and associates that with other forms of domination. So I think there's a mixed bag in which that story has functioned in. Uh, some people see the story as a way of a final confrontation with evil and domination. Others see that as permission to dominate, right? Others who are not like them. So I think that there's a really a mixed review of how that story has functioned. And what theologians are trying to do is to make it less, is, um, I think earlier one of the speakers talked about harm reduction, <laughs> trying to reduce the harm that is done in the light of that story and to make it more possible to have more creative transformations within communities of faith. Yeah, Jennifer, anything to add? Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about the different models that we have adopted throughout um, church history, so the Christus Victor model, you alluded to that, it kind of says that something changed between with evil and good, or, you know, but it almost seems to be not on the stage of history. It's sort of uh, kind of off the stage. And so then you, that's the weakness, I think, of the Christus Victor model. And you say, okay, if there was a defeat of Satan or evil powers that happened, how come you look around and it doesn't seem that they've been defeated, you know? Um, so that's the weakness with that model because you kind of have to say, I mean, things have to change. Oh, it's going to happen, you know, when Jesus comes back, like then nothing has changed. So there's that. And then any kind of ransom model or, um, PSA model or something is really talking about something that's changing either in the Godhead or in between, you know, Satan and, and God, which again is sort of off stage um, and so not that helpful. 
I do, I write on Gerard, um, and so I do like, I do like what he says, and, and it's also in line with um, different liberation models, uh, and that is what changed um, when Jesus died on the cross was that we became aware of who we are. Like, it is a revelation that shows us um, that we as humans um, hurt other people, we create victims, um, we scapegoat, and we, have, we participate in systems that do so, because those are the systems that killed Jesus. Um, and so the thing that changes in the world, with that model and, and liberation models, um, is that we recognize who we are so that we can change. Or Gerard would say, Jesus was the scapegoat to end all scapegoats so that we won't create scapegoats again. Problem is, <laughs> we still create scapegoats. So, yeah. So, the, you asked about the ontological change. Yeah. yeah. Or if there is one, maybe there's not. Who is ordained here? like a minister or elder. So a few of us, and I know in the Roman Catholic Church, they say when you get ordained, there is an ontological change. Something happens, like you are not the same. Protestants don't think that way, and I think some of us actually become worse than we were before the ordination. <laughs> so this cross question is so difficult because it, you know, you raise that question, did something change? But it is so, the cross is so problematic to me and to many feminist thinkers. Um, I mentioned before I was invited to speak at my alma mater and I had to go back to one of the campus, like the building, Emmanuel College, and in front of it, there's a statue of the crucified woman. Okay? It's a bronze statue, and I had to take a picture because when there are women victims, there was a mass shooting in Montreal. I forget how many women were killed. Uh, someone was angry. He's an engineer student. Uh, we hold vigils in front of that crucified woman. When we think about the cross, um, there's a theologian, Rita Nakashima Brock, who says it almost perpetuates this abuse. And I don't know if it was her, but other theologians talk about the cosmic child abuse. That if we are going to think in that Trinitarian sense, God the Father, God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, Christ being crucified is this cosmic child abuse. How can God allow his only begotten Son to be crucified on that cross? So there are so many problems, and Jennifer named some of these theories of atonement. And I was thinking, many years ago when I did my MDiv thesis, I actually did it on the uh, Anselm's theory of atonement. I can't believe I actually wrote on that. But anyway, there are so many levels of problems, and hopefully by the end of this panel, we'll get to somewhere where we can solve some of that. <laughs> All right. Made tall orders, Grace, thank you. So I uh, thank you all. I want to try to shift more pragmatically because um, I think that is important. And I want to start by just sharing an observation that I had one day. And then I would love just to hear the three of you respond. So I noticed uh, that for me, uh, a lot of these atonement models that I had been given, specifically penal substitutionary atonement, since we're allowed to pick on one, we're going to do that one. It's in the title. 
Um, but I noticed that these are, are models that were written by uh, people that look like me, white educated males, and that something like penal substitutionary atonement very easily can become a tool of white supremacy because it focuses on those who are sinning against other people. It's all about God forgives you of your sins, which is important. I don't want to take that away. However, those who are left out are the sinned against. And I noticed that and was like, well, holy shit. Now what do I do? <laughs> Oh, well, I told Tripp I wouldn't use the F word. I didn't say anything about the, the S word. Yeah, it's holy. It's a thing. Didn't Paul say that in the Bible or something? I've never read that book before, so I don't know what is there. But yeah, so pragmatic, from a pragmatic standpoint, I think that matters because it often gets completely overlooked uh, because, at least theologically speaking, so much of theology has been dominated by white, educated males. And um, yesterday, Grace, when we were talking, I, I told you that when I think of the body of Christ, I like to think of a mosaic. And I noticed, yeah, when I looked at my bookshelf that all of my, the authors looked like me on my bookshelf. And so my mosaic of the body of Christ only had one of the little pieces. It wasn't the whole picture. And so I noticed like, oh my goodness, there's entire groups of people that are completely missing in my theology and the body of Christ is not fully represented when I don't have liberation theology and queer theology and feminist theology and Asian theology. And so that was a lot to say, to ask like <laughs> pragmatically, when we turned the, the table on its head and talked about atonement from the sinned against perspective, how does that change the conversation? Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that atonement is not really a biblical theory, right? You have, the Bible has a language of sacrifice that later gets interpreted theoretically through this atonement theory. But there's no, like, it's, and, and let me even back up first. We're trying to really talk about salvation. Atonement is one model of trying to think about Christian salvation. There are many more images and metaphors about salvation than atonement. Uh, yeah. Yeah, look blank. All right. For example, new creation, being in Christ, right? New life, right? All these are metaphors for salvation that are not necessarily about atonement. Even about atonement, I mean, this, we could talk about justification, which is also something that develops later. So these are not necessarily inherently in the Bible. So that's one thing in terms of trying to distance yourself. You're talking about a human construct a human way of trying to understand biblical language that develop, it's a post-biblical ideal, right? In terms of that. So that's one thing. And also it's rooted in the Jewish sacrificial system, right? So one question may be, do we have to think about salvation in the 21st century in reference to a Jewish sacrificial system? We may be at a point of evolvement where we could talk about salvation outside of that. So it may be that the whole framework we're trying to do, it may be straight, putting a straight jacket on us where we can see a plurality of metaphors such as the kinship of God or something like that because all of these are metaphorical ways to talk about something that humans cannot grasp, cannot fully comprehend, right? This type of union 
that we're trying to talk about between divine and human. We're trying to really capture that in language. And the idea of atonement, it has like kind of this juridical, legal juridical feel, because that was the model of medieval times and in the early centuries. But it may be a time where we need to think about salvation in different metaphorical ways. Like we might be have to talk about it in an ecological paradigm, the ecology of God, right? Or something along those lines that we're trying to live into or, be, or our becoming lives into as we, there was mentioned earlier. So I just want to say that as a context to really think about the idea of atonement, that we're talking about something that most of you guys grew up with and it was opposed upon you, but that's not the only way to think about Christian salvation. It's not even the only biblical way to think about Christian salvation. That's what's really key here. The Bible itself has a plurality of models and we're picking one and privileging it over a whole bunch of other models that could be equally as effective, right? So to say that we could either use that and try to reconstruct that if you find that meaningful and maybe in certain traditions, it may need to be reconstructed because they can't get away from it. Other tr tr traditions could just pivot <laughs> and use a new model, right? But if you're going to reconstruct it, there are, you know, there are ways to, to reconstruct it from the perspective of the underside, right? Because there are certain communities, and this is why James Cone kept with the cross, not so much with atonement theory, but with the cross, when Dolores Williams and other feminists critiqued him from using the cross, because he said, look, when I look at the global poor, that means something to them. They have crosses around their neck, they have crosses in their church. And for them, it's really to identify with suffering not atonement, per se. It's a way of talking about Emmanuel, God being with them in the midst of their suffering. They don't impose mostly atonement models on that. Sometimes you might get a megachurch evangelical pastor to go down there and just impose that onto it, but that's not what really is existentially connecting. It's the suffering, the language of suffering and sacrifice which connects with them. Atonement is something that people come from seminaries and impose on a language that's already present in these communities, right? So I just want to offer that as one way to kind of deal with that. There's not a necessity to reconstruct it, but if you can, there are novel ways to do it. But it may be that we've kind of, you know, outgrown <laughs> or developed or it's something that is not, it can't speak as meaningful to Christians in this historical moment as it did in past historical moments. I'll add to that. Um, I think one of the other big problems uh, that comes with these theories that get us to, to ask about, so how am I saved instead of, you know, how does Jesus save the victims, is that we focus only on the cross um, and not on Jesus's life, right? And so if we focus only on Jesus on the cross to say Jesus died for my sins or something like that, you, you don't realize what got him to that point and how he was interacting with the people that he was um, in society with during his whole ministry. Um, and so we have to go back. If you want to say, you know, what is salvation? You can't ask just what happened on the cross. You have to go back to the gospels and read like every single interaction that Jesus has with the people who are marginalized and oppressed and hurting and how he lifts them up and he has their voices um, to be heard. You know, so you have to see all of that in the big picture. And we don't do that um, when we focus on just atonement, right? And, and even if you ask the question, like, what do the gospels say um, about 
atonement or salvation. They, they are not concerned with explaining what happens in God. They are ex- concerned with explaining Jesus's life and how all these systems and people came against him um, to crucify him because of his message for the marginalized. And so that's the message of the gospels. And for some reason, we've decided we're just gonna take all of our theory from Paul in Hebrews, instead of actually reading, reading the story of Jesus. So. Mm, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so just to add to that, you mentioned books, right? So we have some books here, <laughs> Jennifer and I, but then you also talked about um, the sinned against, and I think that's something that Christians don't focus on enough. We're so concerned about the vertical relationship, you know, God and me, uh, personal piety, and, you know, when am I going to pray and read, etc., that we forget about the horizontal relationship. So the Korean word um, that, you know, you use sinned against. So we have a word that kind of capsulates that, and it's Han, H-A-N. So some of you may have read about it, Han, H-A-N. And it really means being sinned against. Because there are systems that are set up to cause suffering. So when you're sinned against, you, you know, I think all of us suffer. So right now, you know, maybe we're suffering a little bit because we're so tired and we're kind of trying to stay awake. But when there are systems like racism and sexism and other systems that are set up to cause unjust suffering, then those people who are suffering are the sinned against. It's the horizontal relationship. I think Christianity, we focus so much about I'm sinning against God that we forgot to really focus on being sinned against and sinning against other people. And I think, you know, I think the more words we have, the better off. So when James Cone and you're a student of James Cone went to Korea, you know, people, the Korean theologians were talking about Han. And then James Cone said, oh, You know, we African-Americans have the same understanding, and we call it the blues. So I think there's different ways to capture this feeling of being sinned against, the system of enslavement, you know, the genocide that caused, you know, wiped out almost the entire population of Native Americans here. When these systems are set up, you know, the, the... Internal suffering and the Han that we experience is enormous. And some Koreans, we say, if we don't release this, it gets passed on to the next generation. The suffering and the pain that we carry on. So I think when we think about atonement, it is this kind of vertical thing, you know, Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins but we forget about the horizontal relationship and how we participate in sinning against one another, causing the blues or this Han, this this unjust suffering that is so deep within that, you know, because, and then you also mentioned, you know, white supremacy. Yeah, I think if Christianity, if women were involved in the forming of the early church, I think our theology would be so different. Or if other people of color were involved instead of the white male Europeans and most likely straight, then I think, you know, we would have a totally different understanding of atonement 
or even if we would have an understanding of the atonement, or even come up with a theory of atonement. So these are questions that we need to continue to ask ourselves and ponder on. Ooh, can I add something to that? Um, we haven't mentioned uh, Latinx theology, and I think we, we should here, um, because they will talk about that sort of all of history was moving towards putting Jesus on the cross because we victimize people so easily. But then if there was a change that happened on the cross, it was that now we must take the crucified off the cross. So we have to look in our society to see who we are crucifying and we take them off the cross. I think that's such an important point um, made from like, oh, I'm trying to think of who does it. It may be Oscar Romero that says that. Um, but yeah, it's such a great point. But that's why when I visited that crucified woman, it was so important because, you know, this problem of gender, you know, because we keep worshiping a white male God, then women keep getting oppressed and get raped and assaulted and are victims and oppressed and marginalized. So seeing that, you can Google the image, um, the crucified woman, it's so important that we understand what is happening with this image of the cross. Mm. Yeah, thank you all. I think a, um, I'll share this and then would love, love for y'all to respond. A, a common thread that I see kind of uh, being pulled in this conversation is it seems like uh, we're talking about something more collective. You guys are talking about a, a collective aspect rather than just this hyper-individualistic kind of thing, uh, which I really like because I think for me, I, you know, call myself an aspiring mystic, so I'll get weird for a second. But I, I really genuinely believe that all things are, are deeply interconnected and interrelated and that sin arises when we buy into the illusion of our separateness. That when I believe I am separate from people, from God, and from creation, that's where sin comes from. Because when I believe I'm separate from my neighbor, I can dehumanize them, I can be racist, I can kill them, whatever. And so I'm just noticing that it seems like when we're talking about salvation, at least within like these more westernized theologies, penal substitution, it's so hyper-individualistic that it seems to miss the point completely. And that perhaps, maybe, if all of us are not saved collectively, then does our individual salvation even, I told Tripp I wouldn't say the F word, does it even matter? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I, I, no, that's the Hebraic, that's the Hebraic sensibility. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of individual is a Greek, right? The Hebrews don't have this. Like, even if you look at Judaism today, the Hebraic sensibility is communal. <laughs> it's the Greek. It's, it's Christianity in, in that, that gives that focus on the individual. And then after the Enlightenment, it just, you know, kind of got codified. So you're right about that sensibility that the idea of salvation was a communal. I mean, the idea of that I go to heaven and everybody else, my community doesn't, right, was not really what ancient cultures thought of themselves. That's really a modern idea that you can be separated from your family and your lineage that way, right? So yeah, that, that, that you know, I would definitely say so. So I think liberationist communities have tried to recover that for modern times, tried to recover those ancient sensibilities and re 
state that in modern terms? What would that look like if we talked about salvation in collective terms and not necessarily always connected to the afterlife, mm -hmm. right? Salvation is some, it's supposed to be here, but not yet, right? So it exists in history, but will be consummated at the end of history, right? So it's not necessarily, I know most models of Christianity connect it to the afterlife, but what's been the focus has been a kind of this worldliness about how God is active here and now and present in history and not something that is going to, that, you know, you can, you can have the world, but give me Jesus kind of thing, right? And I liked um, what you said about the blues because the blues is such a um, important sensibility to African-American culture. Um, you know, B.B. King has this lyric about Nobody loved me but my mama, and she might be jiving, right? <laughs> that sensibility. So it's a blues note within Christianity that there's always this kind of despair or uncertainty, even in certain things that are established. And that's an important dimension of, of, of our human existence to always be aware and awake to that, attended to those realities. Yeah, I, I really like that, Adam. It, it... I just, I don't know. It's it's funny that I'm doing an atonement conversation with you guys because I used to really focus on atonement and then I got to a point where I was like, I feel like I'm asking the wrong questions because this is so, for me, it's like I was so focused and worried about this life to come after death, which I don't even know what the hell that is. I don't have access to that. But so many people go around living their life worried about the next one that they don't actually live this one. The gift that has already been given to us right here and right now in this present moment, and then this abstracted theology allows us to, like you were saying, continue to be oppressive or rate or whatever, because we're just saying, oh, well, at least I said the magic words, at least my ideas are right, so if I treat people like shit, now it doesn't matter because I'm going to heaven when I die anyway. So like that's where... It no, I think to back up and just say, how can we maintain fellowship with God? Or how do we get in right relationship to God or something? I think to really start with that question, instead of the atonement, which narrows that question down considerably, would give people a lot of more spaciousness to be free in, in their responses. And there are a plurality of biblical responses to that. And I think another way to ask that question is in the Gospels. If you challenge someone to find what the gospel is in the Gospels, um, they will have to talk about the kingdom of God, the reign of God coming on earth. They will have to talk about the upside down kingdom, you know? And so if you, if you direct people that way, they're not gonna be doing this individualistic what happened on the cross for me thing. They have to actually read the gospels. So can you tell I'm a gospel scholar? <laughs> nice. So I, I think if more people read the gospels and like actually centered their theology around the person of Jesus, that might do something magical for us. But. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's important to search for the good news because I think Bible, the scriptures, the Christian scriptures have been used to do exactly the opposite of the good news. So um, James Cone taught at Union Theological Seminary. There's a Korean woman theologian, Chang Hyung Gyung. I don't know if you've heard of her. She was invited to the World Council of Churches many years ago, and she did this whole thing about the spirit. 
And then everybody thought it was so syncretistic that she got death threats after that. You know, she was this young 20-something-year-old woman who did this spiritual dance, and then she got death threats. But anyway, now she's teaching at Union Theological Seminary. Bright woman, and she said, you know, um, I think people were doing the pipes today, or smoking, what, what, what were people doing? Smoking smoke, tobacco. Okay, smoking tobacco. So I don't smoke, but I know those who smoke cigarettes, and I'm sure on the tobacco box too, it has a warning label, right? Does it have a warning label on the tobacco box? Uh -huh. What does it say? Don't do it. <laughs> well, it may cause what? <laughs> Cancer, I don't know, breathing problems, I don't know, early death. It may have some warning label. I don't know, because I've never seen the tobacco box. But I know cigarette cartons have that. So Chang Yang-gyong said, the Bible, just like the cigarette boxes, should have a warning label. Reading this may cause war, genocide, sexism, homophobia, uh, I don't know, climate injustice, racial injustice, everything, because we misread it. The enslavement of African Americans, so you gave a good history yesterday. The Bible was used to enslave Africans. The Bible was used to, to kill the Native Americans, cause the, you know, the genocide. The Bible has been used um, to reinforce patriarchy in society and in the church. So I think scripture, you know, when Jennifer was saying, you know, the good news, we sometimes don't want to search for the good news. We just want the news to reinforce whatever one, whatever thing that we're working on, whether it be, okay, we're going to keep the status quo and reinforce white supremacy because we love the white male God. Okay, etc. So I think scripture is important, but so many times we have misread it. We have misused it for our own purposes. So I think we have to acknowledge it. And how do we go from there? Yeah, thank you, Grace. Um, I guess my one uh, final question I would like to pose to you guys is this whole conversation um, around atonement um, has been very anthropocentric. And maybe this is going too big again, right? Now I'm, now I'm getting all big and cosmic. But when we talk about atonement, like people are, we're not, people are not always going to be here. <laughs> and, and the universe existed far before any of us ever showed up. So when we talk about atonement and move it out of just the realm of people-focused, anthropocentric, like what does atonement mean for the rest of creation? And, and do we think that's an important question to ask? <laughs> well, the atonement theory fits within the fall redemption paradigm. And I think that has very anthropocentric for the most part. Um, like, I, I think we just need to shift to a different theological model. I mean, uh, that's where I am at. I'm at. I mean, I think maybe even what Matthew Fox talks about creation spirituality, right? Where you have like a different starting point because atonement starts with sinfulness. So it doesn't start with original goodness. It starts with sinfulness. But the Bible starts with goodness, right? So we skip, you know, the first part of Genesis, right? And go right to the idea of the fall. And that's the narrative starting point for even thinking about these models. So maybe we need to move upward in our reading and start with original blessing, 
original righteousness, original goodness, to start with gratitude and appreciation instead of starting with depravity, right? And I think that's where we need to kind of begin. And with that, we could have a better sense of the beauty of all creation instead of being overly determined by human depravity and the way we thought, think about our theological formulations. Yeah, sure. So I will say that, yes, we have to start with creation. And the gospel then is not just for humanity, is for recreating the world. Um, we are participating in creation. And I think the things that we miss in Jesus' story is that he's not just going around healing people to show them what the kingdom of God looks like. He has you know, power over um, elements you know, in creation. Um, and he shows that, and he shows what that might look like um, in new creation. And so I think those are the kind of stories that we need to highlight um, when we become too anthropocentric. Okay, well, I'm so glad you're here because when we, when we finish, I want you to help with the selfie. I told Tripp to do a selfie, and he did it wrong. <laughs> you, everyone was supposed to sit and do the selfie, and he got everybody up. So, I, Well, you have to stay, okay, because this is the last thing, right? Okay, so... Well, no, we have, a, we have a... There's another event after this, so we're going to have to... No, I mean, this is my last question. That's what I meant. I, I'm so self-centered. I understand. That was the point I was going to get to, that we are so... Yeah. We are so human-centered. This is a huge problem. It has caused this climate crisis that we are in. So we, I think what both of you have said, to move away from that, because we are just a small little creation out of the larger creation. So I don't know, I have so many things, but I got so sidetracked with the picture thing. But anyway, I think if we move away from that, then we won't focus so much on the atonement. When I was growing up, that was the most important thing. My dad didn't talk to me much about much, except for atonement. I don't know why he was so fixated on the atonement. But that is a scary thing, and I think it scares young people off. It may scare the old, older people off too. So if we don't look at that, and we look at, what was the word you said, blessings? Yeah, original blessings. Yeah, original blessings. I think it will change the church drastically because I think, you know, people are leaving the church. People are look, seeking spirituality elsewhere, looking for God elsewhere. But because we have been so self-centered. And I know taking the selfie is a little self-centered, but anyway. <laughs> um, let's just do it anyway because I just like the selfie thing. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thank all three of you for hanging out and entertaining my questions. I appreciate it. And um, yeah. Also, it's cool because we solved atonement. So now no more books have to be written about it. And everyone here can sleep better at night knowing that the three of them solved it. So only at beer camp. <laughs>